And that promise was not kept. They were not given the land, the territory that they had been promised. It was supposed to become Kurdistan. And that land, that territory, was just a few years after that given to Turkey. And so this has created this very unique situation of decades of long, ongoing conflict. And I'm not bringing it up to give commentary on how I think we should act as a nation. Really, both of these people groups are allies in different ways. We are allies with the Kurds, and we are allies with Turkey uh, because of our place in NATO. But that's not the point. The point is that the Kurdish people were given a promise. A promise of land, territory, citizenship, security. None of that came true. They are viewed as a very unique people, uh, in some ways violent and revolutionary, because of the fact that they do not have a homeland. You see, this reality has created the way that they are perceived in the world and the actions that they take in the shadow of what was done to them. And so their place as a revolutionary people is because these promises of citizenship, homeland, security... All of these have not come to be true. So they're a hopeful people, but they're a hopeful, realistic people who, who seem to now understand and realize that they're going, to be, they're going to have to be the ones who take land for themselves. I lay that out as a contrast to what we are considering today. Again, we see, as we've seen time and time again in Philippians, this idea of heavenly citizenship. As we think about it as the people of God, citizenship, a homeland, security, a future, God has given us all of those promises, and what are they? Are they empty promises? No, they are sure, and they are certain. And Paul's point is that since these are sure and certain promises given by God, who keeps all of his promises, who never fails to keep his word, that shapes the contours of the Christian life. That shapes how we are to live uh, knowing that God will keep his promises. So the life-transforming reality is this. Since God's promises are sure, we can freely give ourselves to the Christ-like pattern of living that we see in other Christians who faithfully live out God's call. I'll say that one more time. Since God's promises are sure, citizenship, homeland, security, in heaven, since God's promises are sure, we can freely give ourselves to the Christ-like pattern of living that we see in other Christians who faithfully live out God's call. So a pattern of godly living is our first main point, then a pattern of earthly living, and then finally unbroken and certain promises. A pattern of godly living, a pattern of earthly living, unbroken and certain promises. First, the pattern of godly living. As I mentioned, this idea, this theme of citizenship and and what is primarily on your passport, you're a citizen of where, that is a reigning theme in the letter of Philippians. Roman citizenship permeated the city. It was a far-flung colony, far away from the city of Rome, but the idea of being a citizen of the empire was sought by nearly everyone, and it was attained by the privileged. Slaves, servants, those of lower standing, did not possess the rights uh, and the benefits of citizenship most often. On Thursday, several of us were able to, uh, we were blessed with the ability to 
to hear uh, the speaker at the Ileana Right to Life banquet, Lisa Smiley. And uh, she was born illegally in China. She was the fourth daughter born to her parents under China's unjust one-child policy, now uh, expanded to a two-child policy, though still very unjust. And so she was illegal in that sense, born illegally. And she talked about that her family was able to escape out of China, but the, the future that she was facing was one of a ghost child, as they're called. A child that is stripped of state recognition, given the awful reality of being raised without the support of society, without the recognition even of a, a name. It's a huge epidemic and problem in China, these poor children raised as ghost children. We see something similar in the, uh, the ongoing ripple effects of communism in uh, former Soviet Russia. Romanian uh, orphanages that were forced to raise tons of children in the 80s. And now their society is seeing the effects of how, what happens when these ghost children become adults. Studies have, been, have shown that there's an extremely high rate of psychopathic behavior in Romanian adults around my age because they were raised as ghost children without the recognition of the state taken away from their family. In Philippi, many people would have lived without the official recognition of the empire in a different way, but they would have lacked the benefits that that would give to someone. So the culture in Philippi was a tension between those who have this status and those who do not have that status. So imagine the kind of challenges that the church would face when people are coming to faith in Christ on both sides of this divide. Those who have this status of being a citizen of the empire and those who don't. And it's for that reason, or that's one of the reasons that Paul has gone to great lengths to say that in Christ, the playing field is leveled. We are joint heirs in Christ because all of the blessings that come to us in Christ are given to us by grace. And we are given the rights and privileges of children of God, no matter what the social status it doesn't matter how the world defines you, how Rome defines you. You are defined as a child of God in Christ. And so, of course, this has huge implications for how the church views one another, how the church treats one another. Each and every one of us, we have this, uh, this blessed place amongst the people of God. And so Paul has been unraveling this theme and Chapter 1, verse 27 is a central verse. He says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But that's a, a verb that is, really has to do with citizenship. Paul is really saying, live as citizens who are defined by the gospel. And he's not saying citizens of this world. Live as citizens of heaven who are defined by the gospel of grace. We'll get to that in a little bit later. But it's important to see the connection that he's drawing out between citizenship and living. Being a citizen of some place and a pattern of life. In verse 17 then we see uh, a call to imitation. A call to imitation. Really interesting thing that Paul unrolls uh, before us in this passage. Paul says, imitate me. Co-imitate me. Come together in imitating me. We live in a long line of Protestant humility which is a good thing, Protestant humility, and, and to remind ourselves that we're sinners saved by grace, 
as Martin Luther said on his, on his deathbed, we are all poor beggars. This is the one thing I'm sure of, right? And that's true. But Paul says here, look at me and imitate me. That strikes us perhaps as self-glorifying or arrogant. He says it in other places too. He says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, uh, I, I came to you not taking anything from you. I came showing you an example so that you may imitate me. 1 Corinthians 4, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Why is Paul able to say this and to say it repeatedly? It's because even though he shows humility, and, that's, and he shows it very clearly, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Uh, I have been changed by the grace of God, transformed by the grace of God. By his grace, I am what I am. But he knows that by God's grace, he is still something. He has been changed into something by the grace of God. And he says, God made me who I am today for your sake. God changed my life. Jesus Christ appeared to me on the road to Damascus. He did that for your sake. So that you might see a pattern of godly living. The principle here is to remember that God equips, builds up, and creates people within the church who are to be a blessing to the body. All of us are given a place in the body of Christ. God is working on us by his word, through his word, by his spirit, to build us up to be a blessing to the rest of the body of Christ. He gives each of us place. And someone like Paul had been given such a marvelous outpouring of grace to be able to lead and establish the church in so many different parts of the world, and responsibility came with that. God did something miraculous in his life, and for uh, their sake, he, God, put his life on display. So the church, this reminds us that the church is not simply about our saying that we believe in Jesus and then remaining static in our confession. Our confession is an enormously important thing to do. But God has ordained that we all grow in grace. We are works in progress, as Paul has laid out in verses 12 through 16. God is not finished with us. He's going to be faithful to see it through to the end. Paul has held out examples to the Philippians. Look at Timothy. Look at Epaphroditus. Pay attention to them. And what he's calling them to do is pay attention to those around you who are living according to grace. Who has a grace-filled life? Like what we see in verses 12 through 16. Being at the starting line of the race of the Christian life and you rest in the grip of the Savior at the starting line. Rest in the grip. And then running hard by God's grace in order to attain to that final destination of knowing Christ fully in the resurrection. All by his grace and according to his grace. But to live grace-centered lives. And to do it together. The, the, the wording there in verse 17 is co-imitate me. In other words, everybody come together on this road of imitating Paul's lifestyle. Let all of your lives converge, wherever you're coming from, whatever your struggle is, whatever your identity is, whatever your past is, come together, let your lives converge in imitating Paul. Converge on this road of grace-filled, Christ-centered living. There's a high calling upon each and every Christian to come together on this pattern of living. 
living according to God's grace. There's wonderful liberty in the things of God, right? We, we go to God's word and say that, that there are many things that on many issues on which there are Christian liberty, but there is a prescribed pattern of living and living according to the commandments that Jesus gives to us. The unity that we find is once again found in verse Chapter 1, verse 27, we are to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We all have inherited, as God's people, this pattern of living. This is the command. And just because Paul says, imitate me, and Paul is no longer with us, that does not mean that we are freed from this command. This is a commandment upon all of us to let our lives converge according to this pattern of living. Notice in verse 17, we are told to take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. The call here is to be able to identify those who are worthy of imitation. To be able to identify those who are worthy of imitation. As a Christian, that's what you are to do. Who among us is showing fervor and zeal for good works and for the glory of God, all the while resting in the grace of the gospel? Not slipping into the error of the Judaizers who would say, I can establish my own righteousness. But who among us is showing faithfulness to Christ, zeal for good works and the glory of God? Whoever is doing that, we are to, in some sense, become skilled in identifying these people. We should ask God for discernment so that we might know when we see someone who can teach us about living in gratitude for God's grace. It's a wonderful reminder that God is always working, he's always at work, but he works through different means. And one of the means that Paul gives to us is these godly examples that are placed in your life. Sometimes when a sports team has a bunch of rookies, a lot of development players, Sometimes a general manager will go out in free agency and, and, and he'll buy a, a wily old veteran, perhaps overpay for him, to bring him into the culture of the team and to show the younger players the way that a professional athlete acts and practices and plays. The reason is that he's been through it before. He's been through what these young players have never been through. His wisdom is battle-bought and it's hard-won. Younger Christians... If you want to know where there is an abundance of resting in God's grace and examples of conforming to this pattern of godly living, look no further than the age brackets above you. They have seen more than you have. They have prayed through more than you have. They have seen the futility of earthly treasure more than you have. We see in the Bible again and again and again, look to those who have been there before, who have seen God's grace working in their lives Imitate their faithfulness in and through it. Titus chapter 2 says this. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, that is Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Leaders in the church and those who are our elders 
function often as these kinds of examples. My own seminary professor says this, Dennis Johnson, find folks in whom Jesus' love and purity shine and fix your gaze on how they live out their gratitude for his grace in the way that they treat others, in the way that they respond to setbacks and sorrows, and how they aim for God's glory in every situation. You do that so that God may make you into someone who more people can look to as an example to be emulated. That's the place in the body of Christ, the high calling of each and every Christian. Accept that calling of God upon your life. Believe what Paul says in chapter 1, he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And he gives you a place in the body of Christ for the sake of others to live according to this pattern. There's a pattern of godly living. There's also a pattern of earthly living. A pattern of earthly living. The next point that we see in verse 18 uh, highlights the need for the first command, right? Because there's a distinction. Those who are living according to the principle of grace, those who are resting in the grip of the Savior, who are uh, abiding by all that God has commanded, not perfectly, we're sinners, but there is, a, there is a huge difference, as we see in this passage and all over the scriptures, a huge difference between a repentant struggle and war against sin and thinking, on the other hand, thinking that God is okay with a life that is filled with sinfulness and a lack of repentance. Paul says there are those who walk or live as enemies of Christ. Notice that he's not focusing mainly on their confession of doctrine. Certainly, these kinds of people whom he describes have pretty wonky doctrine because they think it's okay uh, to live thinking that their glory can be in their sin and their shame. Some people think that Paul is still here talking about the Judaizers. Remember, we talked about them the last couple of weeks. This was a group in the early church that was saying you need to submit again to circumcision and these Old Testament ceremonial laws. It's the only way you can be righteous before God. Paul condemned that as a false gospel. And what Paul's describing here really doesn't sound like the Judaizers, does it? For one thing, uh, the Judaizers would... Uh, not glory in their shame, rather they would be boasting in the sins they are not committing. Look at what I'm not doing. Look at what I'm able to refrain from. Look at the righteousness that I have. The very opposite is described here. Those who are following their earthly lusts, those who are unable to control themselves. Notice also how Paul describes them. He described the Judaizers as dogs, as mutilators of the flesh. These people he describes with empathy, sadness, and tears. He's sad that there are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And the, the, the meat of it all is that they don't live in repentance for their sin. They rather glory in their sin. So these are twin uh, or, or perhaps contrasted errors in the gospel. The Judaizers, you can establish your own righteousness. And these people who are described in this passage who say the grace of God is a license to sin. That's another false gospel. The grace of God is a license to sin. Because God is gracious, you can go out and live however you want. Break as many commandments as you want. It's the Romans 6 kind of issue. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? It's not so much look at what I refrain from doing. It is look at my sin. 
God loves me in my sin. There's no need to change. Then as Johnson says, lawless pleasure seekers are as opposed to Christ's cross as legalistic commandment keepers. Their glory is in their shame. We live in a world of a sexual and moral revolution. And one of the things that we see again and again and again in our culture is glorying in this very thing. And we see wings of the church that are saying that it is okay to glory in this shameful behavior. No matter what it is. All kinds of sexual deviancy that we see in our world. And for people to say, look at my sin. God loves me in my sin. There is no need to change. That is a false gospel. Lawless pleasure seekers are as opposed to Christ's cross as legalistic commandment keepers. Their God is their stomach, really their belly is what Paul says there. That's the seedbed of, of sensuous desires, the, 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 the belly. He uses the picture of a, of a glutton to connect to all kinds of fleshly lusts that dictate the actions in the lives of so many. When a, a glutton feels that intense hunger, what does he do? He's drawn to a place where he can uh, fulfill his desire to eat gluttonously. It's a seedbed of sensuous desires. Remember in Titus 2, there was a repeated call to self-control. That's what Christ-like living looks like. Self-control. And here we see the reason why it's so important. Here's why it's so important. It's because through your actions, as Paul is saying, through your actions, the God you are worshiping becomes evident. Through your life, the God you are worshiping becomes evident. Do you worship God in Jesus Christ? Some of you may say, well, yes, I still sin, though. But the issue is, do you live in repentance, resting in God's grace, or do you glory in your shame? Fundamental difference there. If you worship God in Jesus Christ, you will be submissive to the life of the Holy Spirit in you. If your God is your belly... You will follow the lusts of your flesh. You will be unable to control yourself when faced with temptations. What leads you? What guides you? Who guides you on your path? In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The issue here is control and direction. What is controlling you? What is directing you? Are you guided by the influence of the Holy Spirit? Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Or is the fruit of idolatry in you, being directed by the lusts of the flesh? There's been a wonderful revival in grace-filled preaching in recent decades, even in my own lifetime. It's been, it's been awesome to see a, an, an exaltation of the work of Christ and the grace of God that's greater than all of our sin. There's more grace in Christ than there is in you. But a challenge from that, particularly in the moral revolution, the moral decadence of our age, has come with this challenge that uh, many people who call themselves Christians are leaning into licentious living and paying no attention to the commands of God. Don't turn the grace of God into a license to sin. Don't turn the grace of God into a license to sin. And that explains why Paul returns to this idea of citizenship in verse 20. The place of which you are a citizen dictates your life, dictates your pattern of living. 
This is especially true because to be a citizen of heaven means that you have the supernatural working of God in your very being. The new life given to you by the Holy Spirit. Not just a passport with a name on it. Not just the name Kurdish or American or whatever. The markings of God on our heart. And that's really why we're brought back in this passage to grace. It's not establishing our own righteousness. It's not even trusting in our own righteousness. Certainly God calls us to converge upon this pattern of living. And by the Holy Spirit, God will do that in the lives of his people. But it happens because it's an assured identity. It's a fixed identity. It's a promise that is sure and it is certain. It will not be broken. Our citizenship is in heaven. It not, it's not that it might be in heaven. It's not that it could someday be in heaven. Our citizen, citizenship is in heaven. We're not waiting in the customs line. We're not waiting for immigration to process our requests or application. We are not in danger of being exported. We are heaven's citizens through faith in Christ. It may be far off, but just like Rome was to Philippi, Roman citizens were expected to conduct themselves accordingly in these far-flung colonies. And so how much more are we to conduct ourselves as children of God for all the days of our exile here on earth? Those who live with the, their God as their belly, that it's earthly living, And so we're called to this heavenly mindedness and we've been hitting on this as we've gone through Philippians to be heavenly minded. And some may say to have your mind fixed on heaven is just pure escapism. It makes people no longer concerned with the affairs of this life and this world and they become useless to society. They're simply awaiting for God to bring them home. There are many things we may say to that but we'll just offer a few thoughts here. The first thing is that to believe in the sovereign God who has given you this heavenly citizenship, to believe in the sovereign God who has saved you from your sin, is also to believe in the sovereign God who keeps you here on this earth. He's sovereign and he has saved you. He's sovereign and he has kept you here for a purpose each and every day. And thus we approach this life and we say, God has some purpose for me while I remain here. And this is my father's world. And I look around the world and I see all of the goodness in it. And so to be heavenly minded is not to reject the goodness and the meaning in this world and in this life. It is to say that the only thing that ultimately gives this world meaning is the next life. Because the good things that we see in God's creation here are a reflection of what's to come in the next. Love and communion with God and each other. Work, civilization and society. All of these things will be in the new heavens and the new earth. But they will be consummated. And the former things will not be remembered any longer. And so it's for that reason, living for your God, that you live with fervor and zeal for all of these things below. But it's tempered with the realization that it's a mere copy of what's to come. And we're not called to transform this order. We're called to live in faithfulness to the calling of God each and every day and await him to bring that transformation and that consummation. Not only is it an assured identity that shapes our life, you are a citizen of heaven and that is sure, but it's that Jesus Christ is held out as the treasure. What do we await from heaven? Gold and silver? Crown? The life we always dreamed of? 
No, from heaven we await a savior. If you want to have heavenly mindedness central to your life, put Christ at the center of your desires. Let him be your true treasure. You can go throughout all of the universe, you will not find a treasure like Jesus Christ. And so believe that and know it. And from heaven we await this treasure to come. So fix Christ in the center of your gaze. Make him the treasure of your soul. Eagerly await the day that you will see him and you will meet him. Not only is he your savior, but he is your Lord. Since he is your savior, he is your Lord. So true freedom is found in knowing that our true purpose is found in serving the one we were made to glorify. From it you await a savior. Reigning in heaven now is not only your savior, but your Lord. And true freedom is not found in the ability to go into any path that this world offers. True freedom is found in staying on the one path, serving the one you were made to glorify. May we do so by his grace. So that life-transforming reality, since the promises of God are sure, they're certain, they won't be broken, we are allowed to freely pursue Christ-like living and to imitate it when we see it in those around us whom God brings into our lives, to live freely according to the principle of grace awaiting our Savior who will transform our bodies. This mortality that we know will be no more. May we do so in faith. May we do so by his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as your people that we would go through this world a testament to your grace, a testament to the work that you have done in us that we may show forth what you have done in us. May we accept the call upon us to have a productive place within the people of God. And may we trust your work in us as we even see it and imitate it in those that you place in our lives. We thank you, we praise you, we bless you for this opportunity that you give to us. We thank you for Christ most of all and for the salvation that we have in him. Uh, that we were sinners, justly condemned, but saved by him and by his blood. We pray in his name. Amen. We close by singing number 402 in our blue hymnal, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken.